it belies this thing of like putting the technology out front. Nobody cares about your AI. Like customers don't care about your AI. They care about the problem that you're solving. Are you doing it 10 times better or 10 times more efficiently? As same as it ever was. And, and AI just enables a new set of challenges and tasks to be tackled organically in a way that maybe wasn't before. But to do that as a new co from the ground up in every motion of your product versus trying to bolt it on, you know, to a 15 year old technology stack, I, I'm not worried about that. It's in the past. Yeah, that makes sense. Hi, I'm Boaz, founder and CEO of Simply Augmented. I'm excited that you're tuning in to Shift AI, a show that explores what it takes to thrive and adapt to the changing workplace in the digital age of remote work and AI. In today's episode, I am thrilled to have Kirby Winfield as our guest. Kirby is currently the general partner at Ascend, and previous to being a VC, had a storied career as a serial startup entrepreneur, with four of his companies being acquired and two going public. If you're someone interested in startup culture in Seattle and AI in general, you will love this episode. It's great to have Kirby on our podcast. We can't wait to learn more from him. Let's get to it. Kirby, welcome to Shift AI Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate having you here. Uh, I'm stoked to be here, man. It's good seeing you. You've got a, an illustrious lineup of prior guests, and I'm honored to, to to join them. Yeah, well, you know, I'm really I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. So, as you know from previous episodes, I like to read back your experience to you, and then have you correct me if I get anything wrong. Are you cool with that? Oh yeah, man. I've been waiting for it. <laughs> so. I was reading back over your experience and it's really interesting to see how far you've come. A lot of people now think about you as a investor only, but you were an operator for a really long time. You were on the founding team of GoToNet, which went to IPO, was went public. And from GoToNet, you went directly to MarchX and MarchX went public. And then you had several other companies that you were involved in. You were president and CEO of Ad Expose, that was acquired. You were uh, part of the founding team at uh, and on the board of directors at Sharp Agent, and then Comscore was acquired after that, and then Dwellable was acquired after that. Am I missing any companies along the way? Uh, well, you give me t- you give me too much credit. So let's see. I'll go. This is fun. I'll go back and correct you. So the first first mistake is saying that I went directly from GoToNet to MarchX. I actually spent about nine months in law school in between those two startups. I was I was a trusty law scholar at. Seattle University School of Law. And then I got a call from John Keister and he said, hey, we're going to do another startup. And I literally left my law books in my locker at Seattle University and ran away never to come back to do the startup thing. I, I learned a lot in law school. And one thing I learned was that I'm not going to be a lawyer. The other, And then the other thing is, you know, Sharper Agent, I was just fortunate enough to be on the board. Uh, that team, you know, did everything on their own. I, I was not a part of the operating team there. They did get acquired and I actually live on to this day as part of uh, Zillow, uh, which is which is kind of fun. And then the, the third company you know, I ended up running, we we sold the Comscore. Uh, and then the fourth company was Dwellable, which we sold to Expedia. But yeah, yeah it's a pretty, pretty good track pretty good. record. You, yeah. you know, you get, oh, I meant you were pretty good with your accuracy. <laughs> the track record, wow. track record just says a lot about the people I chose to work with. That's the thing I realized after 20 years, and that's why I'm sitting on this side of the table now. And But since then, you've been on a lot of boards. You've also been investing quite a bit. Now you're the managing, you're the founding managing partner in Ascent. And are there other things that you're doing right now in the investment community besides running Ascent? No, I mean this is my full time, full time, full time, full time job. I mean, it's a lot of fun. We have 
two funds now and three SPVs and, you know, probably, probably more to come in the future. And yeah, I've fully embarked on this new career and yeah, focus is entirely on the center. I love it. Well, I'm excited to dig in and talk about the portfolio companies, talk more about your thesis. But before we do that, I want to know a little bit about your past, but what was the first job where you got paid? So the first time I got paid by anyone that wasn't, you know, my dad, you know, stiffing me on, on landscaping hourly payment was I, I went to work for my high school buddy's parents who ran a bakery on the east side, but their real cash cow was every summer they did the festival circuit and they sold strawberry shortcakes. They were there before Behringer Farms. I um, mean, it was called Shuggies and I sliced strawberries. I, you know, got there at 6.30 in the morning and, and hauled strawberries from the freezer truck out to the, to the uh, stall and back again. And I, and I hawked strawberry shortcake at festivals. And it's probably my first sales job. You can't have a whole lot of shame if you're selling shortcake. I, I realized I wasn't comfortable with sales. I wasn't, you know, it took me a long time to get comfortable with, with outbound sales and public speaking and a lot of these kinds of things. But the, the initial thing that helped me as a shortcake salesman was thinking about the value that I was providing to people and realizing like, hey, I'm getting good here. Like, you're getting a shortcake out of this deal. It's not like a set. I mean, it's a lot easier to sell a shortcake at a summer festival than it is to sell, you know, software as a service to a mid-sized enterprise. Like, like I can tell you, what, like it's a time to value and shortcake uh, is very short. It delivers. And then the other thing I learned was, which actually we did a lot of in the '90s at GoToNet was uh, barter. And so we would take shortcakes and we would go to you know the folks at the burrito stand and say hey shortcake for a burrito shortcake for a cheesesteak so there's an entire like barter economy at these festivals it was actually really cool yeah that's yeah, interesting that was fun now tell the audience i mean where you went to high school because i think that you know being part of the seattle uh, startup ecosystem now and you're you know you're a big part of this community and you've been here for a while from you, know, you grew up here so can you tell the audience a little bit about you know where you're from yeah, I actually, so I was actually raised the first eight years of my life in unincorporated King County. Now I was going to school in Seattle and my parents just said, well, we got to move. So we moved to Northeast Seattle uh, where I still live today. Yeah, I attended Seattle prep for high school. I always say, uh, you know, my sister was the lakeside kid in the family. I was the black sheep. I actually got in a fist fight at the lakeside uh, sixth grade application test. My dad always says, yeah, that was you showing us that you really didn't want to go to lakeside. Seattle prep was great for me. It changed my life. You know, I was, I was a bit of a wild, wild kid. And in, and, and in ninth grade, kind of made this commitment to uh, to the folks at prep that I was going to you know put my best effort forward, and that 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 sort of Jesuit mindset of you know forming this person, being a person for others, and you know this whole process of high school as like a formation and not just a uh, not just a set of classes, like really 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 helped me out, and 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 I think has really continued to be important to me in my life. My son now attends the school, and I'm a big believer in it, in it for you know for a lot of reasons, obviously. Yeah. Well, you know, part of this show is about technology and about AI, but it's also about work. The way people identify with what they do for a living, but also how work is changing for everybody in the future. And so you know, when you think about that and about your family, was work a big part of growing up? What did your parents do? And did you guys talk about work at the dinner table? Did that show up for you as a young kid? So my dad is no longer practicing, but he was a radiologist, he was a doctor. I mean, he was a part of a private practice that actually they were the first ones in Seattle to buy the big um, MRI machines. Kind of, you know, they were entrepreneurial in the sense that that ended up being a pretty good business, and and they kind of got ahead of that curve. But no, he was, you know, 
we didn't talk much about business. He was, you know, he's out the door at six in the morning and home at six thirty at night, and then he's on call for as long as I can remember. So he, he's always told me he doesn't understand anything that I've done because he hates all like he hated the hospital administration stuff. He hated that he had to go and take it take a turn as like the CEO or president of his group because he just wanted to treat patients. My mom uh, was a nurse and then um, took some time off and then uh, ended up going getting getting her college degree at the UW in, in a two-year time frame and then got her master's and is now a uh, therapist, uh, licensed mental health counselor. Um, pretty different folks, but uh, now I, I was just like, let me get away from medicine. Sure. Went straight to entrepreneurship. Well, let's dive in a little bit to Ascend. Tell me about Ascend, about your thesis around investing. And then also, I want to hear a little bit about some of the portfolio companies, what you're excited about, what's bringing you energy these days. Sure. Uh, so Ascend, you know, we like to say we're the most prolific pre-seed investor in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we invest, you know, 100% in software, 100% business to business. And vast majority of that touches in some way artificial intelligence, machine learning, or data, or, or vertical software, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. But I just think is you know, AI is basically, applied AI is basically vertical software 3.0, like it's SaaS. Um, it's just better technology to do SaaS. So what are some of the portfolio companies that you have that are, and also, you know, I want to dig deeper into the AI side of things. I know you've been thinking a lot about it. I can imagine that every pitch that you have these days has AI somewhere in the pitch deck. And so I, I want to know how you think about yeah. it as an investor. You know, it's funny. I kind of woke up you know, 25 years in and realized I've been doing AI since 1996 as an operator and, and then now as an investor. So we did, you know, at GoToNet, we owned the two largest meta search engines on the web. So very early in semantic search. I actually saw a picture at Google's offices that they have on the wall of their old, their old search traffic charts. And there's literally, it's a whiteboard and they literally wrote down in two spots, like GoToNet goes live and GoToNet driving, like we drove the third most amount of traffic to Google in the year 2000. So we, we were at it pretty early and I got to work with, you know, one of the foremost minds in artificial intelligence, um, Oren Etzioni, you know, side by side at, at a really formative time in my career. He was very patient with me. I was the marketer and the revenue guy trying to force him to, you know, put his thumb on the scale on search results. And he was, you know, adamant that we not do that and that we let the technology do the work to give the best results to the users. And and then all the way through, I did, you know, we did structured data in the 2000s and um, big data analytics in the 2010s. And and back to some vertical search. And then uh, and then Oren called me in 2017 and, and asked me to help him with the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence Incubator Program, uh, which I've been fortunate to hang around. You know, they let me they let me crash for for free lunch once in a while. And so that's a long-winded way of saying I have a pretty as as a non-practitioner, as a non-technologist, I still think I have a pretty deep and, you know, comparatively, you know, well-informed background and opinion about about artificial intelligence. One thing that that has led me to in, in looking at AI today and looking at all these pitches that we see is just trying to be very cognizant of the fact that it is just a technology that is applied to problems that humans have to solve. It's novel, certainly generative AI, and certainly the, you know, the lower cost of compute and all the things that have kind of come together to create this current hype cycle. You got to remember, you know, being there in the 90s for you know, Web 1.0, the vast majority of the value created on the commercial internet was created after 2003. And if you look at this current like cycle of AI, you might wonder, are we in the 1999 of that particular cycle? And I think you, I think you can make an argument in either direction, but I think that framework really forces you to ask a couple basic questions about artificial intelligence as an investor. And the first is, you know, if you're looking at an opportunity, 
Is it an applied AI opportunity or is it a structural AI opportunity? And, and if it's applied, in other words, if it's applying a new tech, a novel technology approach to an existing workflow or problem, then you got to think really hard about how it differentiates and how it maintains an advantage over time. Now, does it do the job 10 times better than the current? There needs to be an AI first Salesforce and there will be, I, I guarantee there will be, there'll be an AI first Oracle. But the question just becomes, okay, how can you differentiate and solve the problem better than others? What data advantage do you have? What feedback loop and fine tuning advantage do you have? And what brand and user experience advantage do you have? If those are advantages, then you kind of do get back to this world where we thought we escaped two years ago, which is the world of capital as moat and you know, we'll be the first mover, we'll sweep up all the chips and sort it out later. And that's scary as we've seen recently in town and other places time and again. There and you know, is Anthropic really worth four billion dollars? Or is it or is it Lycos? You know, they all can't be Google, like history has told us, but now you've got seven companies you know, that are valued over, you know, multiples billions of dollars, in some cases tens of billions of dollars. So it'll be interesting. And then the second flavor is these sort of foundational technologies that are going to if you think about what's happening at the enterprise today, you know, companies are are changing the way that they're behaving and new companies are being built with entirely different fabric and structure with regards to how how code is written, how goals are managed against, how communications happen internally, how data exhaust is captured and leveraged to make decisions, what roles take on what tasks. And and I think I don't think anyone who is at all active in investing in artificial intelligence would tell you that an enterprise that started today is at, you know, scale 20 years from now, that that company is going to look entirely different than any company operating today. And so it'll be unrecognizable. And so the question then you go, well, if that's true, how can you create a solution today that's impactful enough and durable enough to grow with those enterprises as they become this next generation of not only technology company, but, you know, commercial venture? And those are really big questions. And then you go, well, is this, you know, is an autonomous agent platform, is that going to be durable or is that a short-term problem? Is, you know, security for bringing your own data to LLMs, something novel and potentially protectable. And so those are like the two uh, mental models that I try to apply when we look at AI investments. What do you think about the incumbents that we have right now? When, when you talked about trying to develop a moat for your portfolios or look for those in the pitches that are being pitched to you, seems like a lot of people are tacking on AI to what they're already doing. They already have distribution. They already have a customer base. So how do you think about that? You know, when you look at the sales forces of this world who now all of a sudden have pretty deep AI technology that's associated with pretty great technology that they already had. Yeah. And I've actually, it's funny, I was talking to a friend the other day who runs a $150 million revenue business and, you know, has a number of places where he thinks AI can help him and is wondering, you know, hey, do I need to bring people on to do this? And I said, well, first just try whatever bolted on AI solution your current vendors have, because it's probably good enough for now for for many use cases. But again, generative AI chat co-pilot is a feature, right? And so is, is a feature going to make Salesforce unassailable? Like, is that feature going to make, and I keep picking on them, but you could say any number of other companies that are entrenched. And so you say, probably not. So they're still vulnerable. Now, you're not going to beat them by just building a chat feature for, you know, you need to build a CRM. That's really hard. 
But I, I, I don't think I think the I think you're thinking about it wrong if you think incumbents bolting on AI means that incumbents are unassailable on the AI front. I just think you need to think differently about how you're going to beat those incumbents. And again, it belies this thing of like putting the technology out front. Nobody cares about your AI. Like customers don't care about your AI. They care about the problem that you're solving. Are you doing it ten times better or ten times more efficiently? As same as it ever was. And and AI just enables a new set of challenges and tasks to be tackled organically in a way that maybe wasn't before. But to do that as a new co from the ground up in every motion of your product versus trying to bolt it on, you know, to a 15 year old technology stack, I, I'm not worried about that as an investor. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there some portfolio companies that you have right now that you're excited about that you want to talk about? Yeah, always. Let's see. Overland AI, great great company that that we're really excited to be invested in. Uh, the founder, Byron Boots, HD at the UW, has run an autonomy lab there on the software side for years. You know, it's had students go on to uh, do amazing things at Cruise and Waymo and all the other usual suspects. And he is building an incredible team at Overland to tackle the autonomous software stack for off-road vehicles. Uh, specifically, the go-to-market is in defense and robotic controlled vehicles. So sadly, you know, defense is a growth industry, seemingly always, but certainly given some of the geopolitical unrest, uh, even prior to recent events, you know, it's been emergent and it's been urgent for our defense apparatus to ensure that we're, you know, that we're bringing best practices forward to support, you know, troops on the ground. You've had drones, drones in the air for a long time. You haven't had autonomous movers of materiel active for a long time. And so that's the opportunity uh, that Overland has um, and they're pick my words carefully. They're excited about that opportunity and, and seeing a lot of traction. I saw him present recently at the GeekWire Summit and it was amazing. He showed some videos. It's really, really cool technology. If you, if you can describe some of the videos to the audience, that would be that would be great. I mean, he's basically, they've built this software that uh, allows an operator to put in a, two waypoints, a start point and a finish point in unmapped terrain, off-road, you know, in, in a in a combat theater and, you know, a buggy or a tank or a truck um, then can simply navigate over whatever um, obstacles emerge autonomously with all the data sitting on the edge and all the decisions happening at the edge. Uh, and so, you know, the, the coolest thing is they've got this proving ground over in Eastern Washington and they've got these these buggies and these off-road buggies. And they're, you know, they're, there are some pretty high-ranking folks who are jumping into those buggies and letting them drive themselves uh, based on our software, which, you know, is scary, but also really impressive. And, and yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of the most exciting things we've invested yeah, in. Yeah, that's an exciting one. Is there another uh, company that jumps up for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a company that is called Clarity. So they are on the forefront of detecting deep fakes. So the deep fakes, for those who don't know, are the, it's the practice of bad actors generating generating false video or audio assets and then distributing them in order to misinform or defraud. So Clarity um, is a team of incredible software engineers and cyber warriors out of the 8200 division of the IDF. And they have been for the last year creating cutting edge technology to identify and prevent um, the proliferation of, of these types of deep fakes. And I actually caught up with Michael recently, the CEO, and, and you know he said, well, I knew we would be applying these in, in a conflict you know, at some point, I just didn't know it would be a conflict that was so close to home as our, as most of it is in Israel, but it's also being applied. I don't know if I can say the publishers, but there are three major news networks that you would 
know that have three-letter acronym that are currently evaluating the, the technology and applying it. It's you know it's hard to imagine a world where you know deep fakes are an immense problem. Um, and so you know it's exciting to be hopefully a small part of trying to to solve it or at least uh, prevent harm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oren Etzioni was also on the show and he met with President Biden. And one of the things that they talked about was deep fakes as it related to elections. And so I, I just think it's going to be a huge thing. I was just in Hollywood talking with a bunch of folks there about actors getting scanned and their representations being protected. And so deep fakes are going to be everywhere. So I think that's a really interesting use case. Yeah. And, and Hollywood is another prong of the go-to-market and they're actively engaged there. And actually, you know, non-coincidentally, Oren is on the board of advisors of, of Clarity. So it comes full circle here on the pod. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. I know that you care deeply about Seattle and about not only the startup ecosystem, but the city itself. So what are the opportunities for Seattle to become a hub of AI technology and just, you know, startup technology in general? I think the opportunity has never been brighter. And, you know, and there are a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, you just do a cursory search on LinkedIn and and realize that we have more AI software engineers than anyone else in the US outside of the Bay Area, that the talent pool is so, so deep. And you know, we have centers for excellence like the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. We have a top research university, the University of Washington. We have incredible amounts and always have had incredible amounts of technical talent. I think the reason why this point in time is really an inflection point for Seattle as an ecosystem is we now have the ingredients we had lacked for decades that had kept our big outcomes as a startup ecosystem sort of sporadic. And the things that we lack that we now have, and only really New York and the Bay Area have these things to the degree that I think we're going to see in the next 10 years in Seattle. Number one is a thriving ecosystem of growth stage technology companies that provide both a magnet for and an off-ramp for high octane technical talent from the trillion dollar companies that sit in our backyard. Historically, you would have an amazing leader or engineer from Microsoft have to leave a $10 billion P&L and do a zero to one startup with no stops in between. And that does not usually turn out well. Now, once in every five years, there's going to be a Rich Barton. Like once every five years, there's going to be another exception that proves the rule. But historically, there just hasn't been that depth and breadth of growth stage technology where folks can matriculate themselves into position to be successful doing a startup on their own. And the second is that all of that growth stage technology is homegrown. And so now you have business folks who have taken a company from series A to series D. You have marketers who've taken a company from seed to 400 million in revenue. I remember when I was operating, you couldn't hire. I mean, I was, I was a marketer in Seattle and I wasn't a very good one. And there were like five of us. You just couldn't hire venture scale growth talent here. That is emphatically not the case anymore. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, I think those two elements really combine to prime us for a world where it looks a lot more like there's a there's a tableau and a DocuSign and an auth zero and an ally and the, a world where that's happening much more frequently as opposed to once in a while we uh, we catch a winner. And, and that's the thesis of the fund, really. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I appreciate you sharing that framework because I don't think a lot of people that are listening understand that and you know where we were and, and where we are now. So that, that's pretty interesting. One other thing I was wondering, we had talked about some of your early influences uh, before, but I've never talked to you about your mentors. Along the way as an operator, but also as an investor, are there some people that stand out for you as, as mentors 
that were really impactful in your life? Yeah, for sure. My father-in-law is probably the first. I mean, he you know, grew up uh, in Kansas. His parents owned a grocery store. He worked there since he was a kid. He went on to start a, a title insurance company that's, done, that's now the largest, you know, largest privately held title company west of the Mississippi. And then he's also, he also started a couple of banks. Just a really, and, and he did it all with no idea. He never understood startups because he'd say, what are you doing? What do you mean you're going to sell it? What do you mean you're going to exit it? You know, you build these things for life. You build it for community. You build it to treat your employees right. And he taught me about the, you know, the journey being the thing and, and the end, the end kind of taking care of itself. He taught me, taught me, you know, everyone, I think everyone who's successful at all has had someone tell, teach them this, but he was the one to teach me that you, that you got to ask the question that no one else is asking because they're scared it might sound dumb. And, I, and I've probably taken this you know, to an extreme. I'm being non-technical in a world where I'm investing in highly technical startups, but just being able to slow it down and say, I don't know what those words mean. What do you mean? Was like, I think it's on his gravestone. He was, he was an incredible mentor. I'll say John Keister, not the almost live comedian, but the other Seattle John Keister, you know, gave me a copywriting job while I was still in college. Um, and when I got out of college, recruited me to come and help him start GoToNet. Uh, during the time I worked for him at my first job, he tirelessly, you know, I was just a you know silly kid and he just tirelessly redlined my work, walked me through it, let me go rebuild it, redlined it again, walked me through it again. No, he took me into meetings I had no right to be in. And you know, when I proven that maybe it wasn't a good idea to have me in those meetings, gave me responsibility that I probably hadn't earned and cared for me as a friend, first and foremost as well. John is probably the most powerful mentor I've ever had and still a dear friend and, and uh, an investor in his current startup. So I'm fortunate uh, in a lot of ways there. You know, from an investing perspective, I think I have 10 or 20 people on speed dial. <laughs> Folks, many of whom are, you know, 20 years younger than me, um, but who I still receive mentorship from because they've been doing this longer than I have. And a lot of folks who, you know, when I was pitching them my startups, told me, hey, you think like an investor, uh, which was not a compliment, but who I kind of came back and told him, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm an investor. So, you know, help me get this thing right or help me understand, you know, whether we should be following here or how, how should I, I should say that you never ask someone what you should do, but how should I think about it? Yeah, no, I love hearing the stories about kind of early day mentors, because I think a lot of people that hear that the answer to that question on this show long for those kinds of mentors that have the patience to be able to work with you like that as a young person. I think it's a, it's an art. It really is. Yeah. And I'll say in my career earlier, I strive to be that kind of person, but I don't think I was. I think I think it's sort of it's sort of like being a, an Olympic sprinter. Like you can work really hard, but it's got to be in your DNA. And you know, some people some people are really gifted and and they're great at it. And and yeah, you you get if you get if you find someone like that, you work with them as much as you can. And you know, that's how I spent the first 10 years of my life working with John. Nice. So when you look into the future, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I want you to look farther ahead, five, 10 years. What are a few things that you're thinking about, that you're excited about five or 10 years out from a technology standpoint that you think is going to have a big impact? Yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard to pick one thing. I'm, I'm very hopeful that as we remove and automate a lot of the drudgery of day-to-day -day work, that we will unlock an incredible amount of human potential focused on higher order work. Have you ever read the the uh, sci-fi trilogy, uh, The Three-Body Problem? They basically, the concept is these this alien entity puts a block on our technology development. So we're stuck. We can't get past fusion or whatever it is, right? 
And then once that block is removed, like, I don't know, spoiler alert, <laughs> incredible technologies begin to develop and flow that change society for the good. And this is super oversimplified, but I feel like generative AI is sort of like the removal of that block. And that I'm, and I think it's really hard for us to conceive of what, what those second and third order effects are going to be when folks are not building spreadsheets and you know emailing each other reports every day. It's very, very hard to conceive of. It is science fiction. That's what I'm excited about. So you think it's, we'll look back now and think about this as kind of an inflection point. And who knows what's going to happen in the future, but things are going to come out of this that are, are pretty interesting. I mean, I think so. And I think we've lived through others. And I think we just take them for granted. Now we all walk around with the most powerful computer in the world, you know, in our pocket. Uh, and and we were, you and I were around when you, you couldn't get the internet at your house. I mean, we were around when the internet was only for, you know, spies and hackers. And, and we just take, for, the world is all, we're living in the future right now. We just don't see it because the future happens slowly in when you're there for it, but in retrospect, very, very quickly along the long arc of history. So I think that it's, uh, yeah, I think it's an incredible time to be alive and, and investing in, in, in this technology for sure. All right. Two words to describe the future of work and this ex exceptional future that we're about to go into, and then you can elaborate. So after I just, you know, talked about how great everything's going to be, the two words that I did select were new boss. New boss. Okay. And yeah, and I'm taking those from a famous song by The Who. And the, the, the actual lyric is, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So, well, I think that we have infinite potential for freeing ourselves from a lot of the shackles of the work that we're doing today. We'll find a way to forget that it was bad before, and we'll find a way to forget that it's much better now. I mean, all you have to do is look at humanprogress.org and understand the progress that we've made as a society in the last hundred years against preventable deaths, you know, infant births, child, childbirth, death, standard of living. We're all, and, and everyone lives in the moment. And so everything's still horrible. When again, if you just look back like a hundred years over your shoulder, you're like, holy shit, that, that, things are pretty darn good. It's kind of, it's kind of incredible how good things are. So I just, you know, at the same time as I'm an optimist, I'm also somewhat of a realist and a cynic. And so I think, you know, you can hold those two ideas at the same time, right? One that that things are going to get incredibly, incredibly more efficient, that we will as a society be able to do higher order work and that that higher order work and our horsepower focused on that will yield things. That's the second order effect, right? That it will yield things that we can't understand because they don't exist yet because we haven't had millions and millions of people putting their brains on it because they're too busy pushing pixels. Well, Kirby, I really appreciate you having you on the show. It was really, really interesting to talk to you. And I, I'm really excited about the future and I, I appreciate your input and insights. Well, you're one of the people creating it. So I, I'm glad that you had me on. This has been a really a ton of fun. I, I super enjoyed it. I'm not surprised. Thanks, Kirby. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Such a pleasure to have Kirby as our guest on today's episode. Kirby's knowledge and experience in the startup scene in Seattle and his career in operating fast-growing companies is really amazing. If you want to learn more about Kirby, you can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you're interested in how he thinks about venture investing in AI startups, definitely connect with him and keep up with his posts online. I continue to be amazed by the guests we've had on the show, and I'm truly excited about the ones joining us in the near future. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thanks for listening to the episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the Shift AI podcast for more exciting interviews in the near future and to Simply AI weekly newsletter for updates on how AI can help you scale your business. 
The Shift AI podcast is produced and sponsored by Simply Augmented, distributed by GeekWire, and our theme music was created by Dave Angel.